So maybe I'll ask the first question off of my sheet here, and then I can see people are already starting to form a line back there. So we'll try to get to everybody. I know sometimes we don't, and sometimes we end up making this more than a week, but we'll see how that goes. Um, I, I just thought it was interesting. I know in light of Peter Salmon's message last week out of Hebrews, looking back to the Old Testament, I know we had a s several questions that kind of revolved around that. So I can probably hit a few uh, all in one asking you guys a, a few things. So let's start with that. And let me get to that here as I'm uh, I going think Peter should answer any I know, questions. well, you know. This one says, and, and I'll kind of put another one into it as well too, but it says scriptures in Leviticus says that the people's sins were forgiven following an animal sacrifice. Example, Leviticus 4.20. However, Hebrews 10.4 says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. My question is, how are Old Testament unbelievers condemned if their sins were forgiven through the Levitical sacrifices? Are those forgiven sins counted to determine their decree of punishment in hell? Now also, kind of off of that, we also had somebody ask about how does this work? The Holy Spirit indwelling of all believers began with the New Covenant. Old, Saint, Old Testament saints were justified by faith and not by keeping the law, so outwardly the saved and unsaved might be doing the same external actions. Language about salvation and eternal life is not as central to most of the teaching as in the New Testament. So their question was, what then in the Old Testament would have been the nature of the Old Testament call to saving faith, the distinguishing external characteristics of a saved Old Testament saint, and maybe the internal realities that would differ in the saved person? So they were saying, you know, since we, since they both had to, you know, fulfill the law in the Old Testament, what might be the difference? So coming from that same question, coming kind of from two sides, how were they saved? What might that look like? And then on the second hand, what did it mean by their sins were forgiven by those things. I, I think you guys understand. It's a lot there. I mean, I think, so one thing to say is that no, nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, right? The call to keep the law of, of Moses is, is uh, a call to walk in faithfulness to the God who had already redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. And that really, you know, speaks in, a, in an analogous way to the way that law and the Christian works, because you know, what, you know, Christ, we don't keep the law in order to be saved. Christ keeps the law for us, calls us to trust in the redemption that he has accomplished for his people, and then directs us to, to live in a, in a particular way. And, and the Old Testament is, is not different than that, right? Uh, in in, in uh, Exodus 19, right, the, the beginning of Moses on Sinai with the with the Israelites is, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, and then comes Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments, and then the, the giving of the law. So, I have made you my people, now this is the way that those I have delivered walk before me in, in this particular age where the people of God is a specific nation. As to, as to salvation, right? So, so a lot of the Levitical sacrifices then were, were ceremonial um, implementations of how you were going to walk worthy. So here's a law, Exodus, I've, I've taken you out, I've redeemed you, brought you to myself. Here's a law, how you are to walk before me be holy for I am holy. You're not holy, right? Leviticus, what happens, what happens the fact that I'm walking before a God who's not holy? Well, there needs to be means of atonement because you're going to fall short of that standard. What are those means? In, this, in that era, it was these ceremonial sacrifices, these, these offerings for atonement that would temporarily satisfy the wrath of God against the sin of the, the nation that he brought to himself. None of those sacrifices were a means of eternal salvation for any of them, which is why they had to be repeated over and over again. So when Hebrews 10.4 says the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sins, right? Those sins are not taken away except by the final, fully perfect sacrifice that Christ offers that all of the other Levitical sacrifices look forward to and point to. And whatever efficacy they have, and they do have an efficacy, because he quotes Leviticus 4.20, 
right? So the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven, right? And, and there's a lot of lines like that. The atonement shall be made and they'll be cleansed and they'll be forgiven. It's very efficacious. But what it's not efficacious for is the salvation of a soul. It's efficacious for the, the temporary appeasement of divine wrath against sin, which looks forward to the final sacrifice in Christ that genuinely does take sin away. That's right. And the sacrifices pointed to that. Uh, people sometimes ask, what was the object of faith in the Old Testament? Because in the New Testament, obviously, our trust is in Christ for salvation. What was the object of faith then? And my answer has always been, it's the same. It was Christ. Although they had only a rudimentary understanding of what was to come, this is the reason messianic expectation was so high in Old Testament Israel. They understood that a Messiah was coming who would deliver them. They saw through the sacrifices that blood was necessary to atone for sin. So in a rudimentary way, they, the object of their faith still was Christ. That's what they looked forward to, a redemption that was to come. And Paul makes this argument in Galatians. He says, he points out that Genesis 15, I think it is, says Abraham was, believed God and he was justified by faith. Abraham believed God and it was Credit. imputed to him for righteousness. And so he's making the argument, therefore, justification by faith, just as we teach it and believe it. And he's saying th that's how Abraham was saved as well. And then he deals with the question of, so what was the law for? It was the law a means of salvation? And he says no, because the covenant with Abraham was unconditional. The Lord said, in, in, I will bless the whole world, all the nations of the world, in your seed. And there was no condition attached to that. It wasn't if you keep the law. The law wasn't even given yet. So Paul makes this argument in Galatians 3.17, and he says, and what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, 430 years after Abraham was believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. If it's an unconditional covenant, it can't be done away with conditions. You can't put conditions on the promise after it has been made. Otherwise, God would be breaking his unconditional promise. So this is Paul's whole argument that salvation was always by grace through faith not by law-keeping. The law has a different purpose, and in Galatians he says part of the purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, uh, and he's saying it in nice language. Actually, the point of the law was to, to teach us that we can't be good enough to earn God's favor, because what is the first and great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, you know, all your strength, and my question would be, have you ever done that for even five minutes in an unbroken way? And the answer is, if you're honest with yourself, no. You cannot keep that law because your heart is too inclined to sin. So you need someone to save you. And that was the lesson that people were supposed to get out of the law. Yes, as faithful people, they're, they're keeping the law as best they can. But also as faithful people, they should recognize that whatever, whatever goodness that they attained by keeping the law wasn't really goodness in God's eyes because it was tainted with sin. And so that drives them to see their need for a savior. And, and it was that hope and expectation and promise that the faithful believed in and they were justified by faith, therefore in Christ, even though they didn't yet know the truth of the incarnation or you know, anything about Christ as a person. They were looking forward and their hopes were in the coming Messiah. And then as it relates to the, the Holy Spirit, right, you know, the, the question sort of is born out of the notion that, you know, Jesus in chapter 14 of, of John says that the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him uh, because he abides with you and will be in you. So from that text, many express the notion that there is a change in the, 
the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, with God's people from Old Covenant to New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, he has been with you. We call it the attendant ministry of the Holy Spirit. But in the New Covenant, he will be in you. Now, and that's where it comes from this idea and the question that, you know, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell all believers. But it's important to say that I don't, I don't know of any text that, re, you know, restricts, and as if to say, there was nobody that the Spirit could fill or indwell in the Old Testament. Certainly we know that if anybody was saved in the Old Testament, which we believe they were, that they were saved by regeneration, by the change of the heart. If you aren't regenerated, uh, you're not getting <laughs> saved, right? You're not, you can't exercise faith in the promises of God if your heart is not opened and, and sort of taken, the heart of stone taken out and the heart of flesh put in. Yes, that is the new covenant promise, but th- that's not to signal a change in sort of the plan or means of salvation. It's simply a, a way of saying what was sparing in the old covenant, right? Uh, regeneration and dwelling, these sorts of things, is now going to be pervasive in, and universal in the new covenant, which is what that text, you know, in Hebrews 8, which is a quotation of Jeremiah 31, is saying you're not going to have to go around teaching each one, know the Lord. Like, hey, Paul, get saved. Like, you need to, you need to repent and trust in Yahweh, right? Because, Jeremiah says, and the writer of Hebrews quotes him and says, because they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. So the, the distinguishing characteristic of the new covenant vis-a-vis the old is that the old covenant is a mixed community. By definition, the covenant community you know, comprised both believers and unbelievers. Whereas in the new covenant, the new covenant community is comprised only by believers. And so therefore, in the old covenant people of God, there would be some who were regenerate and some who were unregenerate, some who were filled and some who were not filled, some who were indwelt, some who were not indwelt. The newness of the new covenant is everyone in the new covenant community will be regenerate, you know, permanently indwelt and will, you know, seek the, uh, the filling of, of the Holy Spirit. That's right. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we are Baptists and Amen. not Presbyterians. Amen. We, you should f- explain that. Yeah, because if everyone in... The- <laughs> If everyone in the covenant is a believer, then the sign of the covenant, baptism, is, is for believers only. As opposed to Presbyterians would say... But, yeah, Presbyterian would say, no, uh, my child is baptized because he's a member of the covenant even before he's a believer. Like in the old covenant, they're, you know, they received the sign of circumcision bef- you know, as a child before they were you know, actually a, b- a confirmed believer in Yahweh. They say, well, that's the way it should be in the new covenant. No, it's not, because Jeremiah 31 explicitly says that it's not, the new covenant is not like the old in that particular way, that there are members of the, the old covenant community who are not believers and receive the sign, but there are Members, there are no members of the new covenant community. Now, where the parallel is, is that the church, one, is not Israel, you know, and therefore the local church, right, the visible church, we're not saying the visible church is the new covenant community, right? There are some in this room who may not be believers in Yahweh, right? And so because, just because you are visibly or outwardly associated with the people of God or the covenant community, it doesn't make you a member of that covenant. That only happens by regeneration. So the, basically, the Presbyterians treat the, the, the new covenant community as if it's the visible church rather than the invisible church uh, who, by definition, know Yahweh. Very good. Let's go to the back. And, uh... Okay. Good morning. Uh, my treaties, I mean, my question is... <laughs> Remember, question, form of yes. a question. And it's got only three-sentence uh, introduction. When we think of God, we think of that which is true of him, of his attributes, his perfections. And indeed, when Moses asks to see God's glory, this consists primarily of God declaring a number of his attributes. Granting that his attributes are not various components existing independent of him and out of which he is composed or constructed and might be disassembled by their deletion, but are he himself with that caveat May we think of his attributes as distinct from one another, as multifold qualities, statements that are true of him, true and meaningful perspectives, distinguishable qualities that are thus presented by God to us, 
that are the highest thoughts we are to have of him considering our creaturely limitations. And to briefly restate, knowing that God's essence is not compounded, not made of parts, yet God has presented his attributes to us distinctly, may we ponder these distinct truths about God as he has presented them to us and glorify and adore him in that contemplation. So let me recast it. Right. I was just going to answer it. Okay, you, yeah, all right, you got it. Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say, yeah. You want more than that, Darren? You, you're good. So I, what he's trying to say is, given that God is a simple being, right, that he's not made up of parts, his attributes are not to be considered as something that are more properly basic than God himself, so that there is goodness distinct from God, there is holiness distinct from God, there's love distinct from God, and when you take all of these different substances and put them together, you wind up with God, right? God is a recipe of his attributes. That will, is, is, is paganism. That would, would cause God to be compounded of parts. It would mean that he depends on what is not him to be him, and that you could reduce, you could take something away from God, and he would still be mostly God, but then, you know, just missing this, this attribute. So the simplicity of God protects the fact that, that you know, God depends on nothing that is not God to be God. So in light of that, though, will, so an implication of that is if goodness and holiness and justice aren't pinches of things that you add together to make up God, then it, it follows that God is his attributes, and each attribute is God, right? When we say God is love, 1 John 4, 8, or God is light, 1 John 1, 5, or God is spirit, John 4, 24, we're, we're getting uh, clues to that reality, that he is not just loving, that he is not just the, the result of love, but that he is love. We're, we're winding up having to say that God is his attributes, otherwise he depends on them for his being. And if God is his attributes... And God's essence is one, right, and not multiform, then metaphysically speaking, those attributes are not really distinct from one another, right, which is a weird thing. It's a weird thing to say. It's a counterintuitive thing to say that love is mercy, is justice, right? Those, I think those are true predications about the incomprehensible essence of God, and if we don't make them, then we tear a, a, a thread in the divine being and we wind up, desiring it or not, we wind up having to say that God is composed of parts. But that's a very counterintuitive thing. And what we're, what we're not trying to say, what we're not trying to say in saying, well, metaphysically, the attributes are all identical to one another, is stop thinking about God the way he's revealed himself. Not at all. Right, our, our finite minds can't comprehend an incomprehensible and infinite being. And if he were to reveal himself to us as he is in himself, we would die. We couldn't, we couldn't understand. At the very least, we wouldn't understand it. At the most, I think it would incinerate us. The finite can't comprehend the infinite. And so he reveals himself in what, what is genuinely simple as multiform. Uh, something like, you know, we don't see all the colors of the rainbow in white light, right? Our eyes aren't capable of that except through some kind of prism. In a similar way, God reveals himself in ways that creatures, finite creatures can understand, but who he is in himself is, I think, obviously distinct from that. God reveals himself as having wings. God reveals himself as having eyes. God reveals himself as having a mouth, right? Um, all of those are expressions of an incomprehensible infinite God that are accommodated to creatures with finite understanding. We shouldn't actually think that somehow there's some analogous way to map onto God's being a corporeal body or eyes and wings and so on. So, so yes, we can worship God who is loving and who is love. We can worship God who is merciful and who is mercy itself. But we can't think that our distinctions of God's attributes, uh, as he's revealed himself to us analogously, map one-to-one -one right onto the essence of God. Or, or yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, this is... This is Admittedly advanced theology, a lot of you are sitting there, I'm sure, 
with fog in your brain saying, I, I don't even understand what he just said. The, the, the biggest pushback I ever got on a sermon I gave in Grace Life was when I preached on uh, the, the uh, immutability of God uh, and, uh, or his impassibility, which means he doesn't have mood changes. His mood doesn't change. And scripture is pretty clear. God doesn't change. And if he doesn't change, then even his mood doesn't change. Though scripture explains to us at times that God gets angry and yet we know he doesn't get angry. You know, passions don't happen to him. He doesn't deal with emotions in the same way we do. And I explained all of that and, and uh, taught it from scripture and all that. And yet, that again is, is counterintuitive to the way a lot of people think about God. We want God to be passionate and feeling. And, and uh, once you talk about the impassibility of God, a lot of people think that what you're saying is he's he's impersonable, he's not, uh, he's not capable of having a relationship with his creatures, which is definitively not true. But it's a, it's a hard truth because we can't conceive of a perfect being who never changes. And in the same way, when you talk about the simplicity of God, which is what Mike was talking about, the fact that he's not composed of parts, that's really what it means. But try to break that down in your mind so that you understand it. And and it's very difficult because it's not analogous to anything else in the universe. What do we mean when we say God is simple? I remember the first time I heard that, and my intuitive instinct was, that can't be true. God is surely the most complex of all beings. But and Because that's how we think, you know, naturally, that God is very complex and, and all that. But the truth is, he's simple. He's not composed of parts. Uh, he's indivisible. He doesn't change. And so all of that is to say, don't, even though if these ideas seem like they're over your head, don't blow them off too quickly because you, you have to be careful to discipline yourself not to think of God in human terms. Mm -hmm. Scripture gives us these warnings all the time. The Lord says, you thought I was just like you, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll rebuke you for that. He's not like us. And uh, at some point in your, in your study of the attributes of God and the, and the character of God, you have to discipline yourself to understand that you, you can't frame God in a way that makes him seem human, because he's not. He's e God. Even though there are places in Scripture where he clearly decides to reveal himself in human-sounding ways, like the eyes and the, you know, the anger and, and things like that. I mean, God is not a man that he should change his mind. I, I, I change his mind and, and the word regret are the same word in Hebrew. I regret that I've made Saul king, right? I mean, that's in 1 Samuel 15. The same narrative says, I don't change my mind. I don't regret things. I regret that I made Saul king. I don't regret things. And it's just like, well, what, are you, what are you to do with that? Well, you're to recognize that the categorical statement, I'm not a man that I change, right? That conditions the phenomenological presentation of I'm going to reveal myself in a way that makes sense to you human beings as I, I really wish that Saul wasn't king because of the way that he's uh, conducted himself just as we don't say well it says God was sorry it says he changed his mind so that means that that phrase earlier has to can't it can't mean that God doesn't change his mind or God doesn't regret things you know we don't do that with, with this issue. Well, the attributes are revealed to us plurally, so we can't imagine that there is, is really no distinction between them. Wrong, right? God, this is his best way of revealing himself to creatures who, who are finite. And, and so we receive the revelation uh, severally, even, even decrees. We talk about the decrees of God. Well, the de there are no decrees, plural, of God. God knows all things in one single moment and decrees all, you know, from a, a mind of perfect omniscience from before the foundation of the world. There really is only the decree of God. But we, we speak about the decree to create, the decree to, to permit the fall, the decree to elect and reprobate, the decree to send Christ to atone for sins. Severally like that, in a logical order, because it's our best human way of representing all the biblical data on a God whose mind is infinite. So, yep. So just to sum up, for those of you who's 
who think all of that went over my head anyway. His question was, if we believe in the simplicity of God, that God is one and indivisible, is it still okay then to, to contemplate the attributes of God separately, the way scripture reveals them to us, so that I can think about the mercy of God on the one hand and the wrath of God on the other. Is it wrong to, to ponder those various attributes the way they're given to us in scripture? Or, or actually his question was, is it okay to do that? And my answer is yes, yeah, it's okay. But just understand that, that God is bigger than what you can understand in your own mind as you contemplate his various attributes. Thank you, Pastor Mike and Pastor Phil for answering uh, with a treatise. And Pastor Phil on impassibility, you give me an idea for next question I'll have the next Q&A. All right. All right. Why Ask an easier question. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Hello, Pastor Johnson, Pastor Riccardi. Um, my question was, the Bible often illustrates us as being a soldier, and what would that like, look like, especially for someone who is very irresolute to become a warrior, especially in the aspect of doing hard things, a will to overcome, a fearlessness, or a sense of discipline, like what's found in, I suppose you could say, the Spartans or modern-day Navy SEALs. Somebody who's naturally oriented toward that or not naturally, naturally oriented toward that? Not naturally oriented toward that. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we are called to ha be soldiers. I mean, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, uh, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so he uses several forms there, soldier, farmer, and athlete, to express the, the level of discipline and single-mindedness that a Christian must have. So it's not just you know, I'm not like super like warrior-like, so I can't be a soldier. I'm not super farmer-like, so I can't, you know, grow crops. I'm not super athletic, so I can't. No, I mean, it's calling on all of us, I think especially the men. Paul is talking to Timothy, his protege in the faith, who was a pastor in Ephesus. And he's saying, you know, be a man. He's saying you need to grow up and you need to discipline yourself uh, for the purpose of godliness. And I think all of us, by nature, have a, an inclination towards sloth, laziness, ease, comfort. And those are things that you get to do as a child when you, somebody takes care of you and when you're, you know, responsible or you are, somebody is responsible for you. But as you grow, especially as a man, you know, you're called to put away childish things and to grow up into the, into Christ. And so, and so part of that is, I mean, what do you say to somebody who's not naturally inclined that way? Well, I say exactly right. You're not naturally inclined that way, but you've been born again of a supernatural power, the resurrection power of Christ that raised the savior from the dead. That power works in you. And now by the power of that grace, you put one foot in front of the other to walk in what has been purchased for you, right? And we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Recognize that all that you are not has been purchased for you by the one who was everything that you ought to have been and weren't and, and is given to you by grace if you'd only walk in it. He asked that of you, so I'm going to let your answer stand. <laughs> all right. Well, I know you mentioned 2 Timothy, but I mean... That was kind of the whole point at the beginning, too. 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Yeah. And I think it speaks. Yeah. Even and all I think of those if, analogies speak That's to that. right. If you read between the lines there, too, I think Timothy was probably one of those who, who wasn't born with an inclination to be a warrior. And so Paul keeps admonishing him to be courageous and, and uh, be a soldier. And, and it doesn't mean go out into the woods, you know what I mean, and put war paint on and sing chants around a fire. It means, you know, it, it's, it, you know, I'm a warrior, you know. No, like the, the object of your war, right, is first of all what? Yourself, right? You know, I, I make war on the, the unredeemed humanness that remains. Second, or Romans 8. 12 and 13, right? So then, brethren, we have an obligation, not according to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, 
you will live, right? Put, that's the war that, that's going on. I, I see a war in my members. Wage, I see this, this law in my mind waging war against my spirit where I, I want to do the things that I don't do and I don't do the things that I want to do. Wretched man who, that I am, who's going to save me? Christ has is, is saved me. And so I'm going to put to death what, remain, what, you know, what, what, what is earthly in me that remains. And I'm going to walk in, this, in, in the power of the spirit. So first of all, let your, let your sort of, your angst. I guess you could you could give an exhortation to both people, people who fall off either side of the horse, right? To the one who's you know I'm a, I'm a big bad warrior guy, right? Like, well, I want to see your energies aimed at your own flesh first before you start deciding you want to take over the world or you know whatever. And then to the guy who feels like, well, I'm not the warrior who's going to take over the world. Well, take heart because. Really, the object of your warfare is, is, first of all, in your own heart. And if you're a Christian, you should recognize and love the idea that, that that's what I'm to be consumed with, right? I have to go to war on myself. And then as you do that, right, as you mortify the, the deeds of the flesh and pursue increasing communion with Christ, he will lead you to uh, be whatever, however warrior-like otherwise you need to be. And, and that'll be according to, to personality, to gifting, to constitution, and to, to responsibilities that he's entrusted you with as a steward. Yeah, and the point, by the way, is not for everyone to be the same, the, you know, in the way they handle stuff. Uh, your question raises an interesting sort of side discussion, and that is, I think, I think Scripture allows for a variety of personalities. Elijah was one character. Jeremiah was almost the polar opposite, mm. you know, personality-wise, and Jesus made the same point about him and John the Baptist, uh, that they were two totally different personality types, and the Lord uses all of those, and I, I weary sometimes of the, the natural warriors scolding the, the people who are peacemakers uh, for being too soft, and even a bigger problem goes the other way, where people who, who are sort of natural softies scold the warriors, you know, for, even for pointing out obvious heresy. And this happens to me all the time because I suppose I'm, my personality is naturally to, when I see an error, I want to correct it. And uh, I, I've learned that no matter how bad the error, if you try to correct someone who's taught heresy publicly and try to correct him publicly, you're going to get a lot of pushback from people who think you shouldn't do that. It's a bad testimony to scold your fellow Christian or even a professing Christian who's really a heretic. So I think we all ought to allow more for personalities that are different from ours. Mm. And, and just to put a button on it, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. So one, the soldier endures difficulty, endures hardship, endures persecution. No soldier in active service entangles himself in, the, in civilian affairs. So the soldier eschews worldliness and pursues single-minded single devotion to his master, right? That's a soldiership that we all can get behind. And, and insofar as it's some, somehow derivative from that, I think it's a caricature of, of true soldiership from people who actually, these days, um, want to be a soldier to overcome the hardship Right? I'm going to put down the hardship against us and establish you know, rule on the earth. And I'm not going to get involved in civilian affairs. <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to get involved in civilian affairs and make sure that I can change things for you know, how I want them to be. Very good. Good. We'll do one more in the back, and then I'll go off my seat again. Harry, what do you have? Okay. Uh, yes, I already shared this with both of you. Uh, Phil, you about 15 years ago with Don Green. You remember in, that? Uh, no. <laughs> in in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and there it says that, uh, uh, but the day of the Lord will come with a roar, where heaven and earth will pass, no, the day of the Lord will come as a thief, where heaven and earth will pass away with a roar, and all the elements will be burned up with intense heat. So I asked you, Phil and, and Don uh, uh, Green, where will we be when that happens? And, and we'll be suspended in space watching our Lord and King exhibit his creation as no one got to witness in Genesis. And then I said, will we be like cutouts 
in awe just watching or are we going to want to give a shout of joy and, and praise? And both you and Don Green said, yes, we, we will. And, and I said, well, will the sound of the earth and everything burning up and the explosions and thunder and lightning, whatever, drown us out? Or will we drown it out? And you both agreed, we'll drown it out without shouts of joy. Don Green said, and don't forget the angels, they'll join in with us too. Then I said, well, we sing a song here, says, hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. I said, if we're going to drown it out, then that roar is us. And then, Phil, you said, could be. Now, I've been sharing this for 15 years, and, uh, but now uh, I feel like, am I crossing sacred ground here and putting words in God's mouth there? Or can I keep sharing it? Time to stop. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't ever uh, put too much weight on anything that I'm reading between the lines in Scripture. I, I think there's a legitimate place where you can ask questions like that and, and maybe speculate, but this isn't what Scripture focuses on. And I think we should focus on what Scripture focuses on. The questions it answers, those are the things we try to be definitive on. If you're asking me a question that really isn't answered by Scripture, and that was 15 years ago, I don't remember saying yes to all of your questions, but it was probably more of a qualified, I don't know, maybe. Uh, but that's not what the Bible's teaching in that text. Mm -hmm. So I would say you're better off to focus on what's definitively being taught there, which is that, you know, everything in this world is going to pass away and be replaced by something new and better and more permanent. Uh, that's where Scripture focuses, and not, not on the question of where does that noise come from. That's well said. Good. Well, let me take one off of uh, the emails that I received, and, and we've done a, f a couple of them already in the first question I asked. But this one said, in view of elder qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, consider the following scenarios of a pastor's daughter who professes Christ but becomes pregnant out of wedlock, or a child who professes faith but is an outspoken homosexual. Is the pastor still qualified? Should he step down? Does it make a difference if the children are in the home or not? If a pastor is disqualified because of unruly children, how can he serve the church? So kind of the whole... Yeah, that's a question that comes up all the time. And it's one of those issues that I think... I mean, I don't want to speak for every individual on our elder board, but my impression over the years has been there's not even 100% agreement amongst our elders on how that should be applied and how that should be taught. What about adult children who are out of the home if, if, they, if they abandon the faith? Does that disqualify a man? Here, here at Grace, because, because John has been so firm on that, we, we apply that, that text maybe a, a little more uh, rigidly than than some other churches might. But the answer here would be, yeah, in the past, uh, if an elder had a, an adult offspring who scandalously, uh, in some scandalous way, abandoned the faith or committed a crime or otherwise brought some kind of shame on the family, it would be best for that elder to step down. That's how we've applied it. I. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so firm on that that I would say if another church, like I, I know, I won't name names, but I know some fairly well-known and, and uh, great Bible teachers who have children who have rebelled. And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't regard them as disqualified from public ministry because their adult children abandon the faith. But if you're an elder here at Grace and your adult child abandons the faith, yeah, you'll probably be asked to step down. Yeah, I think the ambiguity, the reason that there is questions about that is because the passage in question, Titus 1.6, 
you know, lists uh, qualifications for the, for elders, and it says, you know, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and, and then it's translated in the NAS, having children who believe, right? But the translation, having children who believe, could also be having faithful children. And, you know, some people would say, well, the beginning of faithfulness is trusting, you know, having faith in the gospel and therefore being a Christian. And others would say, well, no, faithful in this particular context means what the next, what the next verse or the next phrase says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, you can have uh, an adult child who is out of the house, who uh, may come to you and honestly say, you know, mom, dad, I, I, I don't want to bring any dishonor on our family or, or, you know, dad's ministry or whatever, but I just, I just don't buy it. I just, it's not for me. I don't believe it. And, and then you can have another child who is living in, in an openly rebellious, dissipating, you know, drunken, drug-induced, you know, openly immoral lifestyle. And, and those who would say it's not children who believe, but children who are faithful, it's, it's that they're not doing that latter thing, right? So in, in either case, whether the child professes to be a Christian or not, is in the home or not, if they, if they are living a dissolute lifestyle, I, I think that does disqualify a pastor. Now, a dissolute lifestyle is not necessarily, uh, not, not every unbelieving lifestyle is dissolute in the way that I think Paul uh, prohibits in Titus 1. So um, I think the question is asking, what, what does a pastor do when his adult children are accused, credibly accused of dissipation and rebellion? And I think that the answer is you should step down. And even if, even if that wasn't the case, even if you weren't disqualified permanently or whatever for ministry, I think it's a wise application of that to say, you know, and, and it depends on to the extent to which I have, you know, is my, is my son 35 or is he, you know, 22 and out of the house, right? Like, can I exert some kind of leadership? Can I exert some kind of, of counsel, you know, maybe I do need to be unencumbered by the demands of pastoral ministry so that I can go after, you know, the one that God had given to me to, to shepherd and lead and counsel and raise for a time. So even if it's not permanent disqualification, it's, you know what, it might be wise to step away from the demands of ministry to, to pursue your child because you don't want, you don't want uh, the distractions of, of that, the burdens of that, to take you away from the people of God and you don't want the people of God to be a, a hindrance to taking care of the particular children that God has given you. Good, and we've seen that example here at church and yeah. it's been encouraging and it's been you know, also convicting to us even to think about those things as an example. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have young elders like, like you who have children at home who are not believers yet. Yeah. Uh, so how bad would their tantrums have to be before? <laughs> yeah. Vipers and diapers, man. That's, that's the doctrine of total depravity. And, and so, right. you know, that, that gets into the whole discussion as well, yeah. Yeah, it does make you think, because I've often thought, like, even seminary guys and things like that that have very large families, I'm always like, you know, you do think about that, you know, it's like one out of eight could easily, you know, <laughs> the percentages go up with each child, right. but, yeah, I mean, and that's true. <laughs> okay, in the back, yeah. Hi, Pastor uh, Johnson and Pastor Riccardi. Thank you for taking question. My name is Danny, and I'm currently 24. I am newer to the faith. I'm currently in graduate school, and I'm not married. And I was wondering if you have any advice or things that were important to you when you're around that same stage of life that you would give to younger men uh, to focus on so that they can lead a faithful life for the next decades. It was a very, very formative time for me, uh, and so I have a lot to say about that. But, um, you know, I, I would say you need to develop the kind of habits spiritually that you, you want to see in, in yourself when you, you know, when you grow to spiritual maturity. Like, nothing ever just happens. You don't just automatically glide into spiritual maturity. It's like, you know, you don't, just like you don't all of a sudden go from, you know, being a, looking like a child to looking like a man. You know, you have to get in the gym and you have to, you know, exercise and do these things. You have to exercise your, your soul in, in the things of God. So number one, 
you know, every day pursuing God in Christ by his word in reading and prayer and reading not just to check off the box on the reading plan. Okay, I did my four chapters according to McShane's, but I want to know Jesus, right? I, Lord, show me your glory. I'm not letting you go until you give me a blessing, right? That, that wrestling with God that says, you know, your word is here to delight the saints with the, 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 the character of God, the, the knowledge of your son. Show me Christ, you know, help me to see what you have here. In particular, I would say really meditate on the Psalms because the, the, the sort of the emotion that is involved in, in especially with David, but, but others, in just the day-to-day, you know, my, my enemy seeks my, my life, you know, the, the vipers are around me, you know. We don't have necessarily tribunals of people trying to kill us, but we do have an enemy who wants to destroy us and choke out any spiritual life in us and cause us to stumble and shipwreck our faith. And so you, there, there's great spiritual profit to be had in you know, reading of David's trials and persecutions and recognizing that you can apply that, not one-to-one, but you can apply that to the way that your enemy pursues you. And you can have, you know, Lord, let not my enemy triumph over me. And, and you know, one thing I do, you know, I'm going to set my, I'm going to behold the beauty of God in his temple. And I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. One day in your courts is like, is better than a thousand outside. Uh, you've magnified your word above all your name. Like you need that, you need the language of praise and worship in your heart. And so forming your spiritual youth around that praise book of the Psalms, for me, was amazingly devotionally helpful. It really set the track for me uh, going forward. Right. My best advice would be recognize that this is the most formative part of your life, the most important. I think there's a tendency of young people in their late teens, early 20s to think, because it's a time when your passions are at their height your lusts are going to bother you and tempt you, you know, more than they ever have. And you're making life choices that will affect what you do for the rest of your life. I don't think there's any more important time to cultivate aggressive spiritual growth. The tendency for people in that age group is to think, eh, it's okay, I'll, I'll juggle my sins for a few years and then I'll outgrow this. And the problem is you won't outgrow it because the habits you are cultivating now will be with you for the rest of your life. So that's my advice, basically buckle down and learn to be a godly person. Let's go, yeah, to the back. Good morning, Pastor Mike and Pastor um, Johnson, or oh, Phil. <laughs> Um, So my question is from Ephesians 5, um, and I'll just read it as I wrote it. In light of Ephesians 5, that husbands are called to love like Christ, and wives are told to submit to their husbands, does that mean that one is called to sacrifice more than the other? Is there a distinction between who is called to sacrifice more than the other, maybe in certain areas? Well, I mean, so right away... Be, and, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, Ephesians 5.21. So there's a call to one another. Wives, to your own husbands this way, right? And then rather, so the command is be subject to one another and then the application to wives is to their husbands. There, there doesn't wind up being a similar command, you know, husbands to your wives in this way. So it's not husbands be subject to your wives, but it's husbands love your wives. And so it's a, it's, a call to, to sacrificial love. I mean, as Christ loved the church, he, giving, he gave himself up for her. That was a, a sacrificial giving of oneself. And certainly, submission is a sacrificial kind of giving one's life away to put oneself at the disposal of another, to yield one's gifts and talents to the benefit of another. I, I wouldn't say that one is called to do that more than the other, but that sort of the modality of it uh, takes different shapes. Ultimately, I mean, if I'm going to back all the way up, right, if Christ and the church is the parallel for marriage, you know, who sacrificed more? Did Christ sacrifice more for his, his bride in redeeming her, or do we as the church sacrifice more, you know, for a life devoted to him? And I think every one of us would confess that it's, it's the former, right? And so if, if anything, um, if, if there was to ever be any kind of uh, distinction there, 
I would want to encourage, and maybe it's just because I am a husband, but I would want to encourage men to read that passage and say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to race my wife to the bottom. You know what I mean? I'm going to do everything that I can to, to give my life away for her, you know, because Christ as my bridegroom has done that for me. Yeah, Christ sacrificed everything, right? He gave everything. And as Christians, what are we called to sacrifice? Everything. So it, it's, it's a total sacrificial self-giving on both sides. And I, I don't know why this has become so difficult for people to grasp in our era, other than the fact that we tend to be influenced by the rhetoric of secular feminism and all that, it used to be built right into the marriage vows, where when you stand there before the minister who marries you, 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 you make this vow to sacrifice everything. Uh, I, I, I've often said, if, and we went through a stage, I think starting in the 70s, where every couple thought, well, we need to write our own vows. And, and then vows became Dumb. silly. Dumb? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Not really gonna, vows. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say stupid, but my two granddaughters are back there, and that's a bad word. Don't say the, the S word. Proverbs 12.1 yeah. says stupid. He who hates your proof is stupid. But it's actually very simple. You know, when, when, you, when you take those marriage vows, you promise to sacrifice everything. And, and uh, so I, I think if we all had that mindset, marriages would be a whole lot easier. And I think the given circumstance is going to dictate whether it's right before God that one should yield to the other on this particular issue or vice versa. And so it's going to be an application of wisdom every time. Hey, uh, listen, I am happy to give this up if indeed that, you know, this is what's going to be for your benefit, for the good of our family, right? But if it's not, if I'm not convinced, say, as the head of the house, as the husband, right? If I'm not convinced that it will be to your or our benefit, then, you know, I can't lead us in that way. Well, I, I'm, I'm convinced that it's to, to, to be this way, and you need to dwell with me in understanding way and, 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 you know, flex on this. Well, there might be times where that's true, and there might be times where you, you need to sort of say, well, I appreciate that, I hear that, here's why... I still have this, this sort of, I can't get there, and, I'm, and now I'm asking you to follow me. That, that should be a rare instance, right? You, you don't, like I, I think I said it in my Man and Womanhood series, you don't, you don't pull the submit to me card, you know, often. If you do, you're, you're not leading your wife well. Um, you know, but there are times where you're just going to see things differently, and then you do have to recognize that the buck of leadership stops with, with the husband. And so it shouldn't be... An, uh, an abandonment of self-sacrifice when you have to exercise that leadership. It should be, actually, there'd be nothing more than I would like to accommodate my, my wife's feelings, but I'm called to lead her for her benefit and not just for her sort of affirmation and stroking, right? And so if this will actually benefit her, sac I'm being self-sacrificial in doing what is more difficult and against my inclination to displease her because I'm convinced that God would have us do it this way. Good. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity to really thank both of you for your preaching, teaching, and your writings. So, and we'll put a plug in. This is a masterpiece, Mike McCarty's book from last year. It checks in the mail, man. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Yeah. Thank you. It is something else, really. Um, I've been perplexed from being from Sacramento area and about 39 years of my Christianity being around a lot of the Reformed faith. To this day, I'm still perplexed and uh, would like to understand what you might think about them attacking the word biblicist. I consider myself a biblicist, Bible-believing, obeying Christian, right? And I've read recently some from people I know you know who are attacking biblicists or those who are, am I offline by, why, why do they do that? No, I think it's unfortunate that the, that the word biblicist became a bad idea. I think there is a, uh, an illegitimate form of, I would call it quasi-biblicism. People who, who, it always troubles me when somebody says, well, I don't follow any creed but the Bible. And uh, my answer was, it w would be, then, so, so you, you, like, will you figure you're the first person 
in the history of the universe who's, who's figured out doctrine well enough to write, rewrite your own creed, you're going to start from scratch. That, I think, is the idea that people are attacking when they attack biblicism. On the other hand, I'm equally wary of people who would say, you know, this is, this is what our creed says, and then they become impervious to any biblical argument because the creeds are not infallible. Scripture, scripture is. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a legitimate tension there, I think, between do we follow the confession of faith or do we follow scripture? We follow the confession of faith insofar as it correctly reflects the teaching of scripture. And when, when a church like ours has a doctrinal statement, what we're saying is this is what we believe scripture means by what it teaches. Yeah. Uh, so, so the appeal is still to scripture. And, and I, I would be wary of someone who says, oh, well, I don't believe in creeds. I, that's the, the whole basis of the Churches of Christ, the Campbellite movement. They said, you know, we don't, we don't follow any creed, just scripture. And they don't have a written creed, but they definitely have an unspoken creed and certain teachings that they adhere to that would be easily refuted by scripture. So though they would say that they're following scripture, we don't believe they are. Yeah, it really does wind up depending on definitions. I think that for a long time, I mean, e even in when you have like academic discussions about um, what is an evangelical, for the longest time, people have appealed to uh, the work of a guy named Bebbington called, it's a Bebbington quadrilateral, where it says that there's four marks of an evangelical, you know, biblicism, crucicentrism, uh, something else, and then activism. See, I forget them. Um, Biblis, what's, what's meant there is a commitment to the Bible as the sole infallible authority for faith and practice. But such, but such a commitment is not at odds with um, other authorities that are subordinate to Scripture, which are themselves normed by Scripture. And so I, I think the... the and lately, so lately, there have been a group of folks who have been discovering, I think, how at odds their own, in specific theology proper, and Christology and Trinitarianism, how at odds their their doctrine is with the historic faith of the church. And and I think it, you know, it's raised the concern of others who've said, hey, wait a second, that's really what you believe, and you're going to dig your heels in there on on that? And well, that's what my Bible, that's what I see out of my Bible. And, and I think, and it's just this, this I don't want to, uh, to hear what 1,700 years of church history has confessed because that's not authoritative, right? If, if I have to judge the Nicene Creed by scripture, well, my scriptural interpretation will you know, rewrite the Nicene Creed. Ultimately, ultimately, yeah, it, it, you know, by what standard do you evaluate the Nicene Creed? Well, only by scripture, right? But, but the, and so if your conscience really is captive to the word of God and you believe Nicaea confesses something contrary to scripture, you, you must forsake it. You know, the, the, the problem with that is that those people historically are called non-Christians, <laughs> right? Like the Christian means something historically, right? And, and, and it's not because it's in the creed that it's divinely inspired or ultimately authoritative. It's that those creeds reflect a, a, a nearly universal agreement from all faithful Christians for more than a thousand and a half years on the key elements of the faith. So yeah, if you feel like Chalcedon's wrong, you have a duty to say, I'm not Chalcedonian, I, 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 I think scripture teaches otherwise. But then those who belong to the historic Christian faith have a duty to say, well, well then friend, you're not a Christian, right? You're not confessing Christian doctrine. You're an historian or a monophysite or whatever else that Chalcedon means to deny. So uh, I think a, a key, a helpful sort of grid for me in understanding this, and I was taught this in seminary, is the, concept, the relationship between scripture and tradition is along zero, one, two, or three, okay? Tradition three says, tradition norms scripture, right? What our tradition says change, you know, actually causes us to change our interpretation of scripture. Of course, we don't believe that. Tradition two says that tradition and scripture are equally ultimate authorities so that uh, 
the tradition, the, the Roman Catholicism teaches this, usually Eastern Orthodox folks teach this, that the magisterium or the, the history of the fathers is as authoritative as scripture is. We reject that. Tradition zero it was, was, was what a lot of people think sola scriptura means, and it's not. It was the position of the radical reformers. But, and, and that is no creed but the Bible. We, we reject all of church history as having any normative value whatsoever. Don't talk to me about what other people believed. Prove it from, you know, give me the, uh, it's me and my Bible and that's it. And that, that was not the position of the Protestant reformers. Luther, Calvin, all of them uh, embraced what we call now tradition one, which is the notion that scripture is the sole infallible authority for faith and practice, the norming norm, which is not normed by any other norm, and it admitted subordinate authorities, norms, that are normed themselves by Scripture. And, and so that's why Calvin in his Institutes quotes Augustine 800 plus times. That's why so many of the Reformed Orthodox are explicitly aiming to show continuity with the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Creed, with the Constantinopolitan Creed, with the Chalcedonian Creed. They're using language intentionally to say, we're receiving the faith of the fathers. This was not a revolution. It was not the Protestant revolution. It was the Protestant reformation. We're going back to the fount. We're going back. We are the proper custodians of the, of the apostles and father's doctrine. And where there was obviously deviation, there was obviously, you know, um, darkness and, and corruption in the Catholic Church, doctrinally and morally, that needed reforming. It was never, uh, we reject all, everything that, that anybody calling themselves a Christian for the last thousand years said, and, and we're just going from 1517 straight back to, you know, the, the Bible, straight back to 90 AD or whatever it was. No, it, it's, we, re, we receive what the, the, the revered teachers of our faith have passed down to us, insofar as it agrees with scripture. And where I deviate from that tradition, I, have to rec- I need to do so with, with great care, with the notion that it's, it's perilous to do so, and that it may be that my own idiosyncratic take on doctrine is a reflection of me rather than, well, the Spirit has revealed this to me um, rather than everybody else. And there are some who are trying to say that and because that's a long answer and a nuanced answer, they, they wind up getting impatient and they just say, ah, you're just a biblicist. You don't care for all of that. You don't want to go tradition one, zero, one, two, three. What they should do is patiently explain, hey, brother, I am not arguing for a Roman Catholic magisterium. I'm not arguing that we put the creeds on a par with scripture, right? But neither ought you to be arguing tradition zero that we ought to just cast all that stuff aside and, and make ourselves personal popes. Good. Excellent. Thank you. Good. I, I feel bad because I haven't done as many off of my list of people who faithfully sent these in to me. Um, so I, I know we just have one back there and we have five minutes, but I feel bad not hitting up more of these because people are not going to be happy with me. So let me ask one off of this. And I know this is only five minutes, maybe four minutes. And I don't know if you can do this, Mike, but um, <laughs> you've, you've talked a lot about... Uh, Christ and, and, and uh, Christology and things over the last months, this question said three questions about Jesus. Before his incarnation, did the Son exist as a spirit like the Father and the Holy Spirit? What was the difference, if any? After his ascension, does Jesus now exist for eternity in his same glorified body? And then thirdly, if Old Testament appearances of the angel of the Lord were indeed Christophanies, did Jesus appear then as he appeared during his incarnation? So I know that's a lot for four minutes, but ready, go. No, no difference, no difference. Jesus is, is the son of God is, is the spirit as the, the father and, and spirit are. Um, after the incarnation, he remains incarnate forever. Colossians 2.9, written in the 60s, 30 years after the ascension, said, Paul says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form. Okay, so that means that Christ is forever incarnate, which is just a magnificent condescension that, that he would choose to inhabit our nature for everlasting. I mean, it's just unthinkable to me. And then, you know, 
insofar as the, the angel of the Yahweh was the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament, did he take the same form as his incarnate uh, body? I would say no, not necessarily, because the human nature of Jesus was created, right? The human body uh, of Jesus was, was a created thing, a creature. Just It was not God, otherwise the human was God. That doesn't work, right? And so, therefore, you know, he had a body the way that we, you know, have a body, of course. And, in, and before that, he was not incarnate, even if he was appearing, right? So even if he's a spirit appearing as another, he's not incarnate. But you've done a lot lately to say that doesn't mean he was different in any way, right? In, in a sense. I mean, different how? Like from his... No, so, so in, as a human being, right? Like Jesus Christ, you know, the Son of God assuming a human nature, it's a human nature like ours in every way apart from sin. I mean, even having the, the effects of the fall such that he could die, right? Um, but not having any sin, you know, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is absolutely 100% consubstantial with us according to the manhood. So, uh, Yeah. All right, so I apologize for not getting to that last one, and I apologize to like the four other people that I didn't get to on my list. So, But thank you, guys. Let me close us in a word of prayer, and it will be time for us to dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. Thank you for Pastors Phil and Mike, and um, just, Lord, their care for us as their flock. Thank you for their oversight. Thank you for them wrestling with these hard issues, even so that they can help us to understand them more. Thank you for the time or the, the many times that they are in study that we don't see, that they're fighting these fights that we don't see, that they're keeping track of all of these things, and, and Lord, that they're able to dispense them to us. We uh, thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've given to us in these men. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we know we have the answers to all of life and godliness, and that's what gives Pastor Mike and Phil the power and the wisdom um, even to be able to tell us. And Father, I pray that you'd be with us throughout this morning as now we go to worship uh, the second hour. God, I, I again lift up Mike and Cooper, and, and just for his situation, Lord, we pray that uh, you would just be over all of that, and if it be your will that you would restore him to good health quickly. And Father, thank you for our group. Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we thank you for all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to Pastor and Teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.